in uh, 15 years of coaching public high school cross country, I found that my least favorite time of year was homecoming week. Now that might be surprising to you unless you're a teacher and you spend a lot of time on a high school campus. Um, but what I, what I disliked most about homecoming week was the way in which they promoted school spirit. See, they, they want to get the, the whole, you know, assembly of students really excited for that hum, homecoming game. They want to get them to turn out for the, the homecoming dance at the end of the week. So they do events throughout the week. But how they get the students all riled up is by pitting the junior class against the senior class. And all of these competitions throughout the week culminating in powder puff. And, and when that would happen, almost every single year, the juniors would have sort of this hit list of seniors they're going to take out. The seniors would have these pranks they're pulling against the junior class. And by the time it came time for my cross-country meet at the end of the week, the juniors and the seniors on my team hated each other's guts. Now, it's really hard to convince students to run your hardest when they don't care for the guy standing next to them. One of the things I found is that's common throughout all of our society. When there's conflict between any two groups, it trickles in and affects every other group. And our American culture today is polarized unlike any other time in our nation's history. We are divided and it's a stark divide. It's this or this, this side or this side. And lines have been drawn and sides have been chosen. And when that happens, there can be this tendency, this temptation in the church to fall into the same two camps here. And we don't have the same two camps here. We are one body in Christ Jesus. We are joined together by God himself. And what God joins together, he joins without division. He joins it together so we can have the same care for each other. What he's building, the gates of hell can't even stand against. But how does that work? How does that work when we do here in this room, right here, right now, have represented different conclusions about what we should be doing, different convictions, different conscientious objections? How do we deal with that when we're a diverse community, but we're one in Christ? How do we deal with reaching different conclusions? Romans chapter 14 has the answer. We're going to spend the next two weeks going through Romans 14. And, and the reason I'm going here is because we're in John 15 and we're talking about the hatred of the world. And it's so important that when we endure persecution, we're enduring persecution for the right reason. And there's a lot of confusion, I think, around this issue of conscience. How can my conscience be convicted different from your conscience. And Romans 14 has the answer. And what's amazing is we don't need to get on the same page with our conscience to be one in Christ Jesus. Romans 14 verse 19, I think is sort of the central verse of the passage. And he says this, so then let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. The body of Christ, when it gathers together, has one goal in mind. We have peace as our goal. That's what we're running towards. What will pr promote peace among us? And we're promoting peace for a specific purpose. We want to build each other up. This is why we gather. Do you know that? The reason we're gathering together, the work that we do as a community of believers is to build each other up. Paul repeats this over and over again in his epistles. 
In Ephesians chapter four, he's talking about these different offices that God has given the church. He talks about prophets and he talks about um, pastor teachers and he talks about evangelists. And he says, God's given all of these to the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. In other words, this is church. This is what church looks like. God gives people to the church to teach, to preach. That's why we have preaching here. That's why we have Sunday school classes here on Sunday morning. So you can be taught to do what? The work of the ministry. What's that? What's the work of the ministry? Building up the body of Christ. That's the whole point. That's why I'm preaching. That's why you go and you have a Bible study. It's so you can be equipped for a singular purpose to build up the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul is talking about another divisive issue. There was disagreement about tongue speaking and prophesying in the church. Which one is better? Who has the better gifts? And there's all this fighting. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 14, 12, seek to excel, not in speaking tongues or in prophesying, in building up the church. Here's what you should be excellent at. More than anything else, you should be excellent at building up the church. His conclusion in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 14 is everything is to be done for building up. If we leave church on a Sunday and people have not been built up, we have failed at assembling. You understand that? Everything, that's a pretty all-inclusive list right there. Everything is to be done for building up. That's why we're here. That's why you come here and you have conversations and you open up your mouth on a Sunday morning so that the people that hear your words are built up. We pursue peace in order to build up the body of Christ. Now what's amazing is Paul's writing to this church at Corinth. I don't know if you know this, but in his first missionary journey, he's going along and he's planting churches, he's planting churches. He gets to Corinth and he stays there longer than any other church. You know that? He stays there 18 months setting things in order, getting them set, and then he leaves. And he writes this letter to address all of these divisions in the body. I want you to get this. Paul, the apostle Paul, is the one who planted that church. He's the one who established it. And what's it filled up with? All these divisions. This is common in the history of the church. These things happen. One of the central issues that they were struggling with was meat sacrificed to idols. What do we do? Some people are like, you cannot eat that. If you're eating that, you're participating in idol worship. You are actually contributing. You're funding that temple. You're participating in that. Other people are saying, it's just meat. We can have it. It's not a big deal. What do you do? Paul's conclusion is this in 1 Corinthians 10, 23. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. What is he saying here? He's saying when it comes to this issue, not everything builds up. So the central question that you must ask yourself when you have to make these decisions that are difficult decisions is what's going to build up the body? What's going to build up the body? That's the most important issue. In Romans 14, Paul tells us how this works out because that's complicated. So how how does that work out? What does it look like in the day-to-day? So we're going to spend two weeks on Romans 14. But what I see the overarching theme of Romans 14 is that Paul tells us three ways to pursue peace across diverse convictions. Now I want to tell you from the onset what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to tell you today what your convictions are. 
I'm not going to tell you today, here's what you should do. I'm not going to tell you today, here's what scripture requires of you, because that's the point. There's diverse convictions, and that's part of the community that Christ is building. And a matter of fact, I'm going to show you that it's essential to what Christ is doing. So if I'm effective at what I do today, then you're not going to hear from me today whether I'm pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine. Here's what you should get. I am pro-body of Christ. I am pro-body of Christ. That's what I'm passionate about. That's what I'm passionate about, building up. And this is an amazing opportunity. That's one of the reasons I want to take some time to do this. Because what happens as you grow in Christ, you exercise your senses to discern good from evil. What should I do? What shouldn't I be doing? This is an amazing opportunity for all of us to be growing, to be leaning into the Spirit, to be saying, Spirit, lead me. What what you say, that's what I'm going to do. What you're leading me to do, I'm going to obey that. And so what I see, three ways to pursue peace. First one I see in verse one is without arguments. Without arguments. This is how we pursue peace. We pursue peace without arguments. What do I mean? Open up your Bibles. Look at Romans chapter 14, verse one. Accept anyone who is weak in faith, but don't argue about disputed matters. You accept somebody into fellowship, into relationship with you, not in order to win them to your point of view. Do you guys understand? This is counter-cultural. This is counter-human. Why? Because our society today sells the lie of us versus them, of either you're for me or you're against me. Cross the line or stay on that side. You're either my enemy or my friend. You cannot hold a different view than me and be united with me. That's the lie that we are warring against in our culture right now. We can be united and have different conclusions, have different convictions before God. Our conscience can be pricked by different things. And so we accept them not in order to argue them over to our point of view. And do you understand this is written to both sides? to the one who's convinced they can't and the one who's convinced they can. Neither one is to argue their point. That's not how the body of Christ is built up. Now, in in 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses this issue in chapter 8. And he he tells us how not to argue in chapter 8. And he describes it this way. He says, so the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Now, when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. I want you to understand what he's saying is happening right here. You have somebody whose conscience is convicted that something is wrong, and you're not convicted it's wrong. And so you realize they just have a deficiency of knowledge, They just don't know the things that I know. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to share the knowledge with them that I have that they don't have. And what does he say happens? You wound them. These aren't the wounds of a friend. Because what does he say next? He says, you have sinned against the body of Christ. Do you see that? You have sinned against the body of Christ and you wound their weak conscience. And ultimately, who are you sinning against? Jesus Christ himself. And understand, what you just now did is you just shared your information. You shared your knowledge. 
You just try to get them up on your level. Here's the problem. You don't know these things. And so I'm going to share these things with you so that you know that that thing that you're convinced is sin is actually not sin. I'm going to help convince you of that. You're doing violence to the body of Christ when you share that information, when you share that knowledge. Now here's what's really tricky. Here's what's really tricky is there's so many convictions and sometimes those convictions are opposite each other. And sometimes you can have two weaker brothers who have opposite convictions. That's really fun. How do you navigate that? How do you work through that when when one person is absolutely convinced before God, I can do nothing that opposes those who are in authority over me. It's wrong. I can't do it. And you have somebody else who says, I absolutely must. I'm convicted before God. I cannot accept this vaccine. How do you navigate through that? You need supernatural wisdom. You need supernatural wisdom to weave your way through that conversation and not fall into violence against the body of Christ. And here's the great news I have for you today. When you need that wisdom, God supplies it. He supplies all of your need. James says this, you lack wisdom. And here's the deal. You will find how much wisdom you are lacking when you're in these conversations. And here's what I want you to do. Stop and pray. And I want you to pray in faith. Because what scriptures say, ask in faith, believing. And what's going to happen? God's going to give you wisdom. He's going to give it to you abundantly. He's going to give it to you without reproach. And I want you to see the description in James of the wisdom that he gives you. Because this is amazing. This is the wisdom that God gives. So you're here. You're in this moment where it could just create conflict. It could create division. And you ask God for his wisdom. And what happens? The wisdom from above. Okay, so the Father of heavenly lights. He's shedding his, his gifts down on us. Continue without a shadow of turning. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. What's the end result? You ask for wisdom and peace is cultivated. This is your primary purpose in the body of Christ is to pursue peace. How do you do that? You need wisdom. And you need this kind of wisdom. Understand, this, this isn't wisdom to be two-faced. Do you see that? It's pure. It, ha- it doesn't have pretense. It's peaceable. It's sowing peace among the brothers. Now I want to point out something to you that's really confusing. Look at these two attributes of of wisdom from above. It is compliant and it is unwavering. Did you see that? It's compliant and unwavering at the same time. So go ahead and work on that. Be both compliant and unwavering at the same time. How in the world can you be compliant and unwavering at the same time? If I do my job today, by the end, you should know the answer. Okay, so write it down. I'm not going to tell you right now. Write down the question. How can I be compliant and unwavering at the same time? We'll get there, okay? So we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. I want to leave you curious because then you'll stay awake longer. So here's the deal. <laughs> one, of the, one of the lies that I believe is that people need to get on my level for the body of Christ to be healthy. People need to think like me. People need to be convicted like me. People need to be like me and then the body of Christ will be perfect. No. No. When you come to somebody whose conscience is convicted of something that you're not convicted of, that person is essential to you. Did you know that? Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 22. He says, on the contrary, those parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable. Do you guys believe God's word? Do you believe that? 
Do you practice that? When you're interacting with that person, do you believe this person is indispensable to this body of Christ? Or do you think, can't you just get over yourself? What are you thinking? What's in your heart? What's in your mind? Let the word of God convict you, not me. That person is indispensable in that fellowship. I, w- I was going to play a video at the start of my sermon today, but there just wasn't enough time. And, and in the video, I was going to share with you about a guy named Dick Holt. Raise your hand if you've heard of Dick Holt. Okay, cool. I'm going to tell you a story. So Dick Holt had a son named Rick, and Rick was born because of an accident at birth. He was unable to speak or walk. When he began high school, he was given a machine where he could, he could type on it so he could communicate. And when he was 15 years old, he told his dad, Dad, I want to run a 5K. Okay, he can't, can't walk. So, so Dick took Rick and he put him in this, this special wheelchair and he ran the 5K with Rick. And when he finished, he told his dad, he said, Dad, for the first time in my life, I felt like I didn't have any disabilities. Just in, in that, that, that jogging wheelchair and it just felt like I was free. It felt like I didn't have any disabilities. And his dad wanted him to experience that as much as possible for his entire life. And so for Dick Holt's entire life, he set out to run marathon after marathon with his son. 5K, 10K, all over the nation. And then marathons weren't enough, so he started doing Ironman triathlons. Now that's intense, okay? I did, one, I did a half of an Ironman triathlon, and I thought I was going to die. But here's how he did it. He swims the two miles with a boat tied to himself, okay? So his son's in the boat. He finishes. He gets on his bike. He puts his son on the front of his bike, and then he rides the 100 miles on his bicycle, and then he finishes that, and he puts him in that, that jogging wheelchair, and he pushes that wheelchair for 26 miles so his son can experience that. And here's the deal. Dick Holt would have not done that if it were not for Rick Holt because Rick was the passion. Rick was the heart He was the energy. He was the one who kept his dad going. And Dick was the strength. He was the power. He was the propulsion behind that. Which one was more essential? You can't have the inspiration of the story of Rick and Dick Holt if you don't have a weaker and a stronger coming together in perfect harmony. This is part of God's design. You see, here's the problem. In our culture today, we believe this lie. We believe the word weak is a bad word. Think about how scripture uses the word weak. When I am weak, then I am strong. Honor your wife as the weaker vessel. Think about that for a second. Because so many people are like, oh yeah, we don't know about that one. He says, honor that. Okay, this is something to be honored. This is something to praise. You with me? This is something to glorify. This weaker vessel, I'm supposed to honor that. This isn't something bad. Why, why is it a bad word in our society? Well, we have a gym on every corner, right? So you want to be strong. You want to be buff. It's not how it worked in these days. The word weak is not a bad word. It's an essential word. It's essential to the community that Christ is building, a community that the gates of hell cannot stand against. We need people with sensitive consciences. They are essential to the body of Christ. They are indispensable. Romans 14 verse 1, accept anyone who is weak in the faith, but not to argue about disputed matters. What are disputed matters? He gives us a list of two in the chapter. Two disputed matters in the chapter. First one he tells us is food. One person believes he may eat anything while one who is weak eats only vegetables. This was a disputable matter in the early church. Is it okay to eat meat or not? Why were they arguing over it? Because some of that meat was sacrificed to idols. There are certain communities where all the meat you could buy in the marketplace was sacrificed to idols. 
And for some people that offended their conscience, they felt like they were participating with that idolatrous practice. Some of these were pagans who had been saved and for them to do that was to go back to their pagan roots and they could not do it. It offended their conscience. And other people looked at it they were like, it's meat. Just gonna eat it. It's not a big deal. This is a disputable matter. There's not a right and wrong here. It's a disputable matter. What's another one? Verse five, he says, one person judges one day to be more important than another day. Someone else judges every day to be the same. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. This is a disputable matter. Should we have special days in our calendar that we set apart and in those days we especially exalt and honor God? That's a a high holy day in the Christian calendar that we've set apart. We're gonna worship God in special ways. We're gonna remember him in special ways. Or over here we have the people who are saying every day you should honor God. Every day is a day to worship. Every day is for God. You don't need to have special days because every day needs to be like that. Who's right? There's not a right or wrong here. This is a disputable matter. You see, here's the thing that's true across all of our convictions. Our presuppositions are all true. Our presuppositions are all the same. The foundation we're building on is the same. Where we start is the same. But the conclusions that we reach can be very different. And that's okay. How you're going to worship this day or that day, how you're going to celebrate holidays. These things are disputable matters. Now, these aren't the only disputable matters. There's other issues that are disputable, and I'll show you as we get through the text how to identify those as well. But what I see here is that Paul tells us to pursue peace across diverse convictions. First thing he says, without arguments. Your arguments do not help you build up the body of Christ. This is the central task of the assembly of saints. Second thing he tells us is without judgments. Look at the next verse in Romans 14, verse three. He says, one who eats must not look down on the one who does not eat and the one who does not eat must not judge the one who does because God has accepted him. I want you to understand what he's saying here. He's saying, don't put yourself in the seat of God because what's happening is people are looking at their fellow believers and they're saying, I don't think that you're accepted by God because of this activity. Because you're participating in this activity or because you're not participating in this activity, I don't think you're accepted by God. That's a pretty hefty accusation. You have put yourself on the seat of judgment that only one is allowed to sit on. You have put yourself in the position of God. And that's exceptionally dangerous. Now, now I want you to understand this. There's a time for judgment. But it's not final judgment. There's a distinction between judging whether or not somebody is living out the life that God has called them to and they should continue in fellowship with us and judging whether or not somebody is accepted by God. What, what do I mean? Well, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about this, this man who was sleeping with his stepmother. Do you remember that story? And what did Paul say to do? Kick him out. That guy can't continue in fellowship with you. That's unacceptable. And he says later in the same passage, 1 Corinthians 5.11, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. It's a pretty hefty charge. Don't even eat with that person. What person? These are black and white issues. 
You can't go to somebody who's living in sexual immorality and have them say, well, it's disputable. That's not a disputable matter. That is black and white. That is absolutely blatant and brazen disobedience to God's clear command. Do you get the distinction there? And so he goes through this, this whole list. Why? For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside. God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. We have a responsibility to judge those who are inside, but be careful here. This is judgment so that they can be saved. Because what he says in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh for the salvation of his soul. The goal is that he will be accepted by God. We haven't put ourselves in the seat of judgment saying we're casting you out because you're not accepted by God. We're casting them out because we want them to be accepted by God. Do you see the difference? We don't get to sit on that judgment seat. Well, well, how does this work out when you go to your brother or sister and you see them sinning and it's actually not totally clear in scripture whether what they're doing is sinning or not and you say, hey, I think that you're in sin and they say, no, it's disputable. Checkmate, I guess, you're done, right? Is that how it works? No. What do you do? Matthew 18 has the answer. You go and you get two or three others. Why do you get two or three others? So they can figure out if it's a disputable matter or not. And if they come and they say, no, this is not a disputable matter. You're in sin. This is very clear in the text. You're disobeying this. You're blatantly and brazenly disobeying God's command. You need to repent. And they say, no, it's a disputable matter. Now what do you do? Now checkmate again, right? Now you're stuck. No, what do you do? You bring it to the church. Now this doesn't mean that you stand up on any random Sunday and you tell everybody you air somebody's dirty laundry. No, you go to the leaders who set up the church so that things are done decently and in order and you share this with them and then they tell you okay, it is a disputable matter, then it dies there. Or they say, no, it's not. And they go to the person and they still don't repent. What happens? You tell it to the church. Why? For the salvation of their souls. Not for final judgment. None of us sits in final judgment against anybody else. None of us does that. God is the final judge. What we do is we discern. And when we come across these issues and we're not sure whether it's disputable or not, we go through Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is given to us as a gift from God so that we can sort this out. Because there's more than just meat and days that are disputable matters. And how do we figure those out? Case by case. Praying for wisdom. Seeking the Lord. You need help from God and he provides it for you. In Romans 14, he goes on. In verse four, he says this. Who are you to judge another's household servant? Before his own Lord, he stands or falls, and he will stand because the Lord is able to make him stand. Who are you to judge someone else? Why do I not have any right to judge him? Because of who he's standing in front of. See, oftentimes we're, we are as human beings so egocentric that when we're talking to somebody, we think they're standing in front of me. I'm here to discern, to figure out whether or not they're justified in their action or not. No, you're not. He has one master. You're not the one who comes to that fellow slave and says, this is what you're supposed to do in the house of God. His master tells him what he's supposed to do in the household of God. That's not up to you. And here's the reality. Here's the lie that we're really believing. God is the one who's able to make him stand. You see, the reason that I wound my brother with my knowledge is because I believe I'm the one who's going to make him stand. Man, if I could just share all this information with him, then he'd stand up. Then he'd be strong. Then he'd have strong legs. Then he could run fast for Jesus. I'm going to make him stand. I'm going to get him there. I'm going to train him for Jesus. It doesn't work that way. There's one 
There is one who is able to make him stand. And it's not you and it's not me. It's his master who makes him stand. Do you believe that's true? Do you believe God can do it? Do you interact with your fellow believers like God can actually do a work in their life without you trying to force them to conform to something you believe they need to conform to? I love the confidence that Paul has in the letters that he writes. Very confident concerning you. He talks about how he who began a good work in you is going to be faithful to carry it on to completion. Do you have that confidence for your fellow believers? That God is going to work in their lives. This is part of what it means that love believes all things. I believe all things. Why? Because I love my brother. And what that means is I believe that God is able to finish what he started in their life. I believe all of scripture is true of every believer. This is the reality that we're confronted with. And what this does is it kills the words in my mouth that would wound my brother. That are not going to help them. That are not going to aid them. Instead, I recognize that God is the one who makes him stand. And my job here is to build him up. Paul returns to this idea of judgment and expands on it in verse 10. He says, but you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will praise God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. He's saying, hey, stop trying to figure out everybody else's problems. You have your own. You're going to stand in front of God. You're going to answer for your actions in front of God one day. And so don't do these two things. Don't judge and don't despise. And I want you to understand this. Despising your brother is judgment we keep inside of our heart. We cultivate it within us until it turns to spite towards the one that we should love. Don't despise the one for whom Christ died. Don't hold that silent judgment in your heart. And what cures that is to recognize they're going to stand before their judge and I'm going to stand before that same judge. And that levels the playing field. That does not exalt me. That humbles me. And it's really that humility that's going to guard against that ego that thinks I need to tell everybody else how it is, what they should do, why they should follow me. Paul tells us three ways to pursue peace across diverse convictions. First one, Accept the weaker brother without arguments. Second one, you have no right to sit in the judgment seat over your brothers and sisters in Christ. There's only one judge. And lastly, with full conviction. This is shocking if you actually think about it. He's saying, here's, here's the solution. There's all these diverse convictions. You need to be more fully convinced. Think about that. That's not how the world, it's the world's like, well, hold your conviction loosely. You know, like, ah, don't vest yourself too much in it because then that's just going to breed discord among the brethren. No, he says, no, you need to stand up. You need to be absolutely convinced. This is what I'm, that's the solution. Look at the passage. This is crazy. One person judges one day to be more important than another day. Someone else judges every day to be the same. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. Think about that. He's saying, you think you need to have this special day that you worship God. Somebody else says every single day, this is a disputable matter. What's the solution? Be fully convinced. Be absolutely convinced. This is what God will have me do. That's the solution. This sort of blows my mind. What is he saying? He's saying decisiveness is the solution for divisiveness. Do you get that? You need to be able to make your mind more clear. And that's going to deal with this. Why? 
because we're not the world. I want you to understand this. In the world, for somebody to hold fast to their conviction, they need people to follow them. In the world, anybody who's convicted of somebody, they need followers to feel confident in that conviction. We don't. Because our conviction doesn't come from our fellow man. My conscience is not dictated to me by those who surround me. My conscience is dictated to me by the spirit-implanted word of God. There is one judge before I stand or fall. And what he tells me to do, I don't need anybody else to do to know that it's right in the world. They need everybody else to do the same thing so they know they're right. Because if other people aren't doing it, then they must be doing something wrong. And so they need uniformity to have unity. We don't. I can be absolutely convinced this is what God is commanding me as his slave to do. I can do nothing else. And it's okay if nobody shares that conviction because I know my master, I know my father, I know my Lord, and this is what he has guided me to and I will obey him. And it's okay with me if you don't share that conviction because we're each slaves we each submit to our master in our own way. This is the answer, guys. I had you read a question down earlier, James 3. How can wisdom that is from above be both compliant and unwavering? You are compliant in conversation and unwavering in conviction. You are compliant in conversation and unwavering in conviction. Your conviction doesn't need to come through your conversation. End of Romans 14, what does he say? He says, what you, what you believe you're supposed to do, have it between yourself and God. That conviction, be absolutely convinced. So convinced you don't need to tell everybody. That's how convinced you are. That sets us apart from the world. The world needs followers to be confident. We are followers of Jesus Christ. And my confidence is derived from the master that I follow. I do not need people to share my conviction because there's one who judges me. And what he has told me to do, I can do nothing else. Now, what I want to do, I want to spend the rest of the time looking at the end of verse five, because what does that look like? And, and there's, there's people here who they haven't figured this out yet, right? What does God want me to do, right? What is, what's that full conviction look like? How do I know? How, am, how do I get to that place where I'm fully convinced, God, this is what you want me to do? You need to work through that. So we just want to ask the question for this, this, at the end of this, what does full conviction look like in Romans 14, verse 5? The first thing I see is in the next verse, I'm fully convinced I am honoring God. Full conviction looks like this. I am absolutely convinced this is the activity that God is calling me to in order to glorify his great name. And that is my sole purpose. That is my identity. I am a worshiper. I glorify God. I praise his great name. Romans 14, 6. Whoever observes the day, observes it to the honor of the Lord. Whoever eats, eats for the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God and whoever does not eat, it is for the Lord that he does not eat and he gives thanks to God. You're absolutely convinced this is for the glory of God. It's not for me. It's not so people will notice me. It's so God will be glorified. I am convinced this is what will bring the greatest honor to my master. And that's my identity. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, talking about meat sacrifice to idols, he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. This is the filter through which you make your decisions. Will this honor God? Whether you're eating or you're drinking or you're taking medicine, whatever you're doing, will this honor God? Are you convinced this is going to honor God? Then you do what's going to honor God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter's talking about how there's times where we do things that causes us to suffer persecution. This is sort of where we got off on this in John 15. And when we do those things, we need to make sure we're making that decision because God has convicted my conscience of this. So in 1 Peter 2.9, it says this, for this, 2.19, excuse me, for this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unrighteously. There's certain times where you're going to suffer where the leaders that you, can't, you cannot submit to the leaders in your life and you're going to suffer and you need to know in that moment, the reason I am rejecting these authorities is because of my conscience before God. And here's the thing, I want you to get this. Your conscience towards God can be different than mine. And what does he say? He says you find favor because of your conscience towards God. You come to a different conclusion and what happens? You find favor. That's okay with God. You, you don't need to be the same as everyone else. And here's what I mean by it's okay with God. I love the story of Ezekiel. You know the story of Ezekiel? You know, you know his bread that he makes? Remember that? The bread that he like, used to be able to buy the Ezekiel bread. I always found that amusing because it was actually punishment, the bread that he had to eat. But what was really punishing about this bread that Ezekiel had to bake was the means that he had to use to bake it. Do you remember what God told him to do? Because it's kind of icky. Right? So if you don't like icky things, you might want to plug your ears. But here's what God said. God said, here's what you're going to do. You're going to make this bread and you're going to cook it and the fuel you're going to use is human excrement. And Ezekiel begged God. He said, God, I have never defiled my vessel in this way. Never defiled myself with, with using human excrement for the fuel. Lord, please don't make me do that. And what did God say? Get over yourself, Ezekiel. Come on. Have a stronger conscience. Is that what God said? No. God said, okay, you can cook it over, um, over animal excrement instead. God met him where he was at. He was convicted. I can't do that to God. Are you with me? And what did God do? God met him where he was at. If because of conscience towards God, one suffers, you find favor. 1 Peter 2, verse 19. What does full conviction look like? I'm fully convinced I am honoring God. Second, my action fills me with thanksgiving. Because God gives me the opportunity to do this, my heart is filled with gratitude and thanksgiving to God for bringing me to this moment. Look what he says. Whoever observes the day observes it to the honor of the Lord. Whoever eats, eats for the Lord Here's how you know you're eating for the honor of God. Since he gives thanks to God and whoever does not eat, it is for the Lord he does not eat because he gives thanks to God. Here's how you know that you're actually doing it for the honor of God because of the thanksgiving that comes into your heart. When you do what? Eat or don't eat? You eat, you eat and you say, God, thank you for providing this for me. Thank you for meeting my needs with this. Or you don't eat. You reject that. And you say, God, thank you for the opportunity not to take that into myself. 
and your heart is filled with gratitude. This is what draws the line between the, between the legalist and the weaker brother. This is so important you understand this. Because we, we can't allow the legalist to gain traction in our church. And here's what a legalist does. A legalist says you need to do this to be saved. And understand the legalist thinks, I'm going to go ahead and deny myself this thing that I really want in order to prove myself to God. I have to do this or I'm not saved. That's what the legalist does. That's not what the weaker brother is doing. The weaker brother is saying, no way. I can just like not eat meat and God can be glorified. Thank you, God. I can do this for your honor. I can glorify you with this activity. You can be praised as I do this. This is an opportunity for me to shine bright for you and honor your name. That is a privilege. Do you see the difference there? Because the legalist is thinking, I don't know if I'm saved if I do that. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about somebody whose heart is filled with thanksgiving for the opportunity that God has given them. Think of Daniel. In Babylon, he, he goes to the satrap who's over him and he says, hey, we can't eat this meat. It's been sacrificed to idols. Please do a test. Let us just eat vegetables and water. We won't do, eat anything else. We won't drink wine. We're not going to eat meat and see if we're more healthy. And what happens? He's more healthy. They're more healthy. God honors that. And Daniel does that how? With thanksgiving in his heart. That God is preserving him. This is the distinction between the legalist and the weaker brother. What does full conviction look like? I'm fully convinced that my actions are honoring God. My action fills me with thanksgiving. And lastly, I'm a slave of God in mind, body, and heart. Everything that I am is his. My life has been forfeited to him. Look at the passage. For none of us lives for himself and no one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and returned to life for this, that he might be Lord over both the dead and the living. I want you to understand this. You, you know that those, those inalienable rights that we have as citizens of this great country? When we become citizens of heaven, we surrender those. Do you get that? I've given up my inalienable rights to my one master. And I've said, God, my body, the breath in my lungs, my food, everything that I am, I'm laying it all on the altar. I'm a living sacrifice. I belong to you. I don't belong to myself anymore. I've surrendered every right I have to you. Whatever you tell me to do, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to obey you. Wherever you lead, I'm going to follow. This is how you have to see these issues. You can't see it any other way. And so when it comes to a decision about a vaccine, let's say this. Let's say that the vaccine could save your life and God says, don't take it. What do you do? Yes, Lord. Let's say the vaccine could save your life and God says, do take it. What do you do? Yes, Lord. Let's say that it could damage your health and God says, do take it. What do you do? Yes, Lord. Let's say it could damage your health and God says, don't take it. What do you do? Yes, Lord. See, the issue here is my body isn't my own. I have surrendered it to my master and what he tells me to do with this body, I must obey him. I must honor him. And what that means is sometimes you're silent before your enemy and Jesus offers his body freely as a sacrifice. But other times it means like Paul who says, wait a second, I'm a Roman citizen. Why is he doing that? Why doesn't he just let them beat him? He's going to have treasure in heaven for being beaten. Why does he do that? Why is sometimes he gets beaten and then he tells them he was a Roman citizen? Why does he do that? Because he's obeying his master. Do you understand that? 
because he's filled with the Spirit of God and he's going where the Lord is telling him to go. And it looks different at different times. What's he telling you to do? Where is he leading you? The safest place for you to be is where your shepherd is leading you. Now, now this is difficult. How, how do you know what he's telling you to do? How can you discern what his perfect will is, right? Isn't that sort of the central question here? What's his perfect will? The answer is in the scripture. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, you see how to discern God's perfect will. Did you know that? You want to see the answer? Let's look at it. Romans 12, verse 1. Start here. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. You can't even begin to know God's will for your life until you surrender everything to him. You cannot begin to discern his perfect will if there's parts of your life that you have held back. That you've said, no, God, you don't get that. No, God, I won't obey you there. No, I will not give my life to you in that area. That's too much. You're not going to know as well. Do not be conformed to this age. What the perfect will of God is, is not dictated to you by the culture that surrounds you. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have the mind of Christ, and you're worried about knowing what you should do. Look at the way that Jesus lives his life. The Spirit of God is guiding you, is leading you. You have the mind of Christ. But by the renewing of your mind, you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. You have been regenerated. You have been made a new creation. You have this new mind. And we constantly need to remember this. And here's what we're doing. We're getting back and reminding ourselves. This is what renewing our mind looks like. Oh yeah, that's what I have. That's what I've been given. That's the wisdom that's been made available to me. I renew my mind. I bring myself back to center. And then I say, God, what's your good and perfect and pleasing will for me today? And then you follow him. He commands, you obey. You need to make this the practice in your life with every single decision to renew your mind, to commit your way to the Lord. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And what is he gonna do? He's going to direct your path. And so my challenge to you today is to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Will you be transformed to discern the will of God today? It does not need to be confusing. His spirit can communicate to you clearly what he would have you do as his slave. Present your body to him as a living sacrifice. Lord, we thank you so much that you promise wisdom and you give us wisdom. Help us, Lord, to walk in that wisdom so that we might build up the body of Christ, so we might sow peace among the brothers. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.